Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week, we are continuing our series titled Legacy. Whether you realize it or not, your life has a profound impact on those around you. We can use our uniquely created talents, abilities, and gifts to make a difference in our world. Is it possible God wants to use you in a special way to change your world for good? Do you even know what gifts you have been given? Pastor Tim brings part two of Legacy this week and encourages us to stop and reflect on how God has made us. We hope this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Uh, The earliest recollection I have as to what I wanted to do when I grew up was that I wanted to be an archaeologist. I just love this idea of finding these historic, ancient treasures buried here or there. You know, you'd watch movies like Indiana Jones, and it just seems so exciting, so much fun. You know, I just wanted to be part of that and discover things that have been just hidden for thousands of years. When I got older, though, I saw this profession through the lens of an adult. I saw it differently. I came to realize that I kind of romanticize that particular profession. I mean, I'm sure people that are in archaeology love it, but I think mostly it's a lot of hard work. It's dusty, dirty. I've been to some sites, by the way, where they were doing excavation, and um, most of the things that they actually discover, it's, it's you know, garbage from like 2,000 years ago. And I brought some back with me from Israel. You know, hey, this is like 2,000 years old garbage. Now, again, I think people love that, but I realize that at a certain point, that's the problem. I'm glad I didn't go into that. I think I would have been disappointed. And then after that, I was kind of interested in the idea of, of going into law, and I, I think it was motivated by Perry Mason. Now, if you don't know who Perry Mason is, uh, you're young. But, you know, Perry Mason, he was supposed to be this uh, defense attorney, but really what he was was a detective more, I think, because during the trial, if I remember correctly, he he would discover the real murderer in the midst of the trial. And so he'd be doing this research behind the scenes, and then he'd discover who really did the crime, and then it would be exposed toward the end of the program. And and that looked like fun to me, too. But I realized, again, I was looking at that career through romantic eyes that most of the work I'm sure that lawyers do are are studying books. I took two business law courses at the university and I realized I'm not, that's just not my thing. I think most of us, you know, we go through our lives as we're growing up, we're trying to decide what it is for us. I'd be curious, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'd be curious how many of you ended up in in that career you thought you would have. There are some. You know, I've met some people that have said to me ever since I was five, I wanted to be a nurse or something like that, and that's what they ended up doing. Although even they determined in time that it was a little different than they envisioned it would be. But they ended up in their dream job, in their dream career. Now, I not only did not end up in my dream careers, what I thought of, but I ended up in the very career I did not want. Some of you have heard my story, I just... I just did not want want to be a pastor. It's the one thing I did not want to do because my dad was one, and I I saw just what it was like. I saw the inside of of everything and and saw that they were struggling all the time just to make ends meet and, and for what? To be criticized all the time. I didn't want to do that. And yet, here I am. And yet, when I was in high school, after I graduated from high school, I ended up going to Bible college. 
It was not because I wanted to be a pastor. My, my, my motive for going to Bible college was not honorable. It was not like I felt this great calling and I'm going to go study the Word of God. It was not like that at all. Really, I went to Bible college, I think, for three main reasons. Number one, I went to the same school my parents went to. Both my mom and my dad graduated from the same Bible college I went to. And at the time, we lived in the Chicago area, and the school was in downtown Chicago, and so it just became the thing to do. They didn't put undue pressure, but it just, things lean that direction. Well, it'd be go, to, go to Bible college, and that's what I ended up doing. Second, at this particular school, they didn't charge tuition. And I don't think they do now either. You had to pay room and board, but there was no tuition. It was like a scholarship, just get accepted. And so it was cheap. You know, I like to say for spiritual reasons, but honestly, it was, it was the cheap way to go. But third, the third reason I, I think I went is because I had not done any work at determining what I should be doing. I had not stopped to reflect on, on how God had made me and maybe what God wants for my life, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. I had not done any of that work. And so what basically happened is I graduated from high school and I drifted into Bible college, and that's how I ended up there. It's really not a very spiritual reason to get into ministry, but I love the fact that God is sovereign. I love the fact that God has a way to get us where he wants us to be. And in time, God did steer me in this direction to the point where I became confident, yes, this was my calling. This is where God wanted me to be, but it took a while to get to that place. To realize that the very thing I didn't think I would want to do was the very thing God wanted me to do and something that I could actually enjoy doing. Now, I think most of us have what I would call the unexamined life. I, don't, I think we go through life almost as if we're asleep. We're just not really mindful of, of life. And, and, and many of us have not asked questions like, who, who am I? Who did God make me to be? And, and what, what is it I'm supposed to do? And what is the unique place that God has for me in the, in the kingdom of God? Where does he want me to operate? Where can I have the greatest impact in the world for good? And I think that's something we should stop and ask ourselves. In Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, the Apostle Paul said this, pay careful attention then how you walk, in other words, how you live your life, not as unwise people, don't be unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul's saying here, it is wise for us to understand what God's will is for our lives. It's it's wisdom and, and it's foolish to go through life and not understand what his will for us is, whether it be day by day or whether it be in terms of a life profession or whatever else. Now, in this verse, when it says here, making the most of your time, we're supposed to make the most of our time because the days are evil, the literal translation of that is that we need to redeem or buy back the time. We we redeem it. We buy it back. And the image that comes to my mind is that every one of us has been given this life, and we've been given talents and abilities and skills and and experiences and everything else God has entrusted to you, and you trade what you are for something else. We all exchange it. And when you get to the end of your life, whatever you exchange this for becomes what we would call your legacy. It's what what you leave behind. Now, ultimately, I think our legacy should be that we 
We're seeking God's legacy, that we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I think if we're in that place, by the way, we're in the best place we could be. But let me ask you the question, have you stopped ever to ask that question? You know, what does God want me to do? Where does he want me to go? What, what can I do to best fulfill God's purpose for my life? Now, my takeaway is this, that when, when we are in God's will, we're in our sweet spot. I think these two intersect, that when you are doing what God made you to do, and by the way, in Ephesians 2, in verse 10, it talks about the fact God created you for works that he planned for you to do ahead of time. And when we're doing what God created us to do, we're in that, when, when we're in that place, I believe we are in the, the, the best place of our lives as well. We enjoy joy and peace, and, and, and we realize this is what it's all about. So how do we discover what God's will is? You know, we, last week began this series called Legacy, and Again, I, I think the main thing about this series is, is just recognizing that we kind of take an inventory of our life and ask, out, ask the question, what are we going to end with in the end? And, and ideally, our legacy is the legacy God had for us. It was, it's fulfilling God's legacy for our lives. But in Romans chapter 12, I think we learn at least a few steps on how to discover what that is. What, what does God have for us? What is it he wants us to be doing And it involves three steps, and I'm going to tell you what they are up front, and then we're going to delve into them a little bit more deeply. The first one is this, that I think we need to, if we want to really understand God's will for our life, we need to offer ourselves up to him. And I'll talk about what that means in a minute. But we offer ourselves to God. Second, I think we need to observe. Specifically, observe the gifts and talents and other things that God has given to us. We need to see these things. And the Apostle Paul talks about this, talks about it as if we take inventory of our lives. And then third, I think we need to operate within the context of a spiritual community because others can help us determine what this is. But let me ask you before I jump into it, in terms of discovering God's will for your life and his plan and everything, do you really want to know what it is? Because I realized that there have been times before where I was praying like, Lord, I'll do anything you want, and then I've stopped almost mid-sentence like, let me take that back. I'm not sure because I'm afraid like what God's going to want is the thing I don't want, like getting into ministry. And so we're so quick to say, Lord, whatever you want for me. But it's kind of a scary place to be. It takes a, a real trust in our God. To say, I trust you, God, that your way is the best way. Your plan for my life is the best plan. Are we willing to do that? But if we are, when we are in God's will, I think we'll be in our our sweet spot. So let's begin by reading Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we'll talk about offering ourselves to God, first of all. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, brothers, and this is a reference to men and women. Uh, King James Version would have put it brethren. Therefore, brethren. By the mercies of God, or because God is so merciful to us in so many ways, I urge you, I beg you, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed or changed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, that's our goal here today, right? To discern the good 
the perfect and the pleasing will of God. And so this is part of the answer to the question, how do we discover what that is? And he says we need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, Josh referred to Romans 12 a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Josh, and he talked about the fact that the first 11 chapters of Romans are theological in nature, and it spells out all that's true about us if we're Christians, all that's true about us if we are in Christ, and and how God in his mercy reached out to us, though we were all sinful and going astray, and he sent his son, and God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, and, and we were born anew, and he gave us his spirit inside of us, and he's got these amazing things in store for us, and heaven awaits us, and God does all of these wonderful things. Romans 1 through 11, but then when you get to chapter 12, it gets into now it's our part our responsibility, given these truths, what are we to do? And he starts this chapter with the word therefore. And I mentioned a few weeks ago, when you see therefore in the Bible, you ask, what's it there for? It's therefore, because of everything he said, because of the mercies of God, everything covered in chapters 1 through 11, because all of those things are true, the, the most reasonable thing that we could do is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. So that's my first Point here, offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Because of God's grace, his mercy, his compassion, his favor, his kindness, we offer ourselves up to him in service where he begins to direct our steps. Now when this happens, I believe God begins to lead us in new ways. Now let me take a little side, I don't know, get off the course just a little bit here. A lot of people are, you know, asking about this question about what's happening at Asbury Seminary and now it's at Cedarville and, and it's happening all over the place and this revival that started when it's just like a worship service that never ended and it's been continuing for days and days and days and it's still going on as we speak. And, and a lot of people are asking the question, what do we do with this? I know a lot of people that are down there because they're, they're posting their videos and, and comments on their feed in Facebook. So I'm following all these people that I know. I, I found it interesting that in most cases, the impression that people have about what's happening is the, the impression I would have predicted that those individuals would have had. I just find that's interesting because I think, I think sometimes we go down and say, I'm really you know, open to what's happening here, but I just had noted that ones that I suspected would, would be critical, because that's what they are, would be critical, and they were, and those that are really open to certain things were kind of open to these things. I think that a few lessons out of this thing, and you'll see how it relates in a second here, but number one, we need to be slow to criticize. None of us are, are down there, but we need to be slow to criticize. In the New Testament, we're specifically told, don't quench the Spirit. If the Spirit is doing something, don't you be the one to pour water on it. Don't you quench the Spirit. And so God may be doing something, and we let God do what he's going to do. Of course, he's going to do it anyway. He's going to do it anyway. <laughs> Number two, just an observation about it, in terms of just having discernment as Christians, the majority of the people that I know are making this argument that this is of God because it's not human-led. They're just observing that no, you know, people aren't uh, continuing this on. People aren't going up there stirring it up or anything. It's just happening. 
And that may very well be the case, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's of God either, just in terms of discernment, because people get swept into things. You know, people might go down there just to say, I want to be part of the next best thing, and you get swept into it. But I don't think, again, we better criticize what God might be doing there. The third thing, and this is really important, is that God can do this anywhere. And what I have observed in Scripture is that oftentimes what God does is he does something in a particular place to shine a light on what he's doing, and it causes everyone else to look. Israel in the Old Testament, that's what it was. It was a big object lesson for the entire world so people would find the true and living God. And so God does operate in this way sometimes and he finds a place and he does something remarkable, but it doesn't mean you have to be there for that to happen. And you can be alone. And this past week I was able to spend a couple days at my cabin and I was enjoying the Lord as much as anyone else was probably on the planet because God's everywhere. He's not limited to a campus as if you have to go there to experience him. He can, all of us can experience this, but this leads me to the, the, the final point I want to make and where it relates to what we're talking about. My obs- observation is that, that oftentimes these things, if they're true revivals, lead to repentance as one of the main signs where people start dealing with sin in their lives. And this was one of the clues to me that maybe this was really of God because students were going up in front of their peers and confessing secret things in their lives and getting things right because they wanted to offer themselves up to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And they were open to what God might want to be doing in and through them. And this is where things then begin to be released, where God begins to use his people in special ways. Now, Paul in this passage says, you offer yourself up to God, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But then in verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed or changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This word transformed is the Greek word for metamorphosis. It's the exact same word that's used for a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. And so this is part of the secret, and you've got to take verses 1 and 2 together. If you want to offer yourself up to God as a living and holy sacrifice, part of it is don't get contaminated by this world but be changed or transformed, become like a butterfly in in, in such a dramatic transformation by renewing your mind. And I think the Spirit does that. I think you renew your mind through what's taught in the pages of the Bible and not what the society is saying is true. This is part of how we'll stay holy. Instead of listening to what our culture says, we say, I'm going to listen to what God says, but it can change us dramatically. That word metamorphosis is the same word that's used to describe Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. And God wants to be changing us. And so when you put these two together, you get a little bit of a different picture. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul is clearly referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system. All of you, I'm sure, picked that up. He was talking about the fact that in the Old Testament, people would bring an offering to God and they'd present it to God, but what needed to be true about the offering that they were presenting is that it had to be without any blemishes. There's supposed to be nothing wrong with this. The people were to, be remember, or were to remember that they were offering something to the creator of the universe. In the Old Testament, sometimes they forgot this, and some of the prophets spoke about this, about Israel, because they were bringing animals that were defective to God. 
And some of these prophets said kind of sarcastically, why don't you give that lamb to the king and see if he loves you? See if you can walk away with your life if you do that. He's not going to be pleased with you. You're offering junk. Now, Paul's using this illustration, and we know in biblical times, before some of these sacrifices, like right before um, we did the pass- they do the Passover, they would select an animal three days ahead of time, which, by the way, Jesus was arrested or selected three days ahead of time. And they would observe it for three days, and then they'd make sure that it's a, a proper sacrifice worthy of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and then they'd offer it before God. All of this is wrapped up in what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying we have to be perfect. We'll never be perfect. But he is talking about offering ourselves to God as, as being holy and set-apart ones, a proper, a, an appropriate worship of our very lives. And when we do this, I think, again, it opens the door for God to use us in, in new ways. Now, God can use us even when we're sinful. I remember a time uh, many, many years ago when I, I went through a day that was particularly, it just was not a good day. I, I mean, I, I just was, I was just a, I don't know if I could say a lousy Christian, but I, it was just, I was, a, it was, I was, I, I, it was a horrible day. And that evening, a friend of mine from the neighborhood walked over to me and said, will you tell me how I can get right with God? I want to be saved. And I couldn't believe it. And I led this this girl to Christ right there. And then I went home and I wept about it because I thought, I can't believe you used me when I was so wretched. You used me. God can do that, but... The ones he uses in powerful ways are ones who are holy and set apart. And when we have things in our lives that we're aware of and we're holding on to, I think it it limits what God will do through us. He can do anything through us, but it limits what he will do through us. And you say, where do you get that? Well, 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, Paul gives an illustration of this. He says, now in a large house... There are not only gold and silver bowls, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable or special use, and some for dishonorable. And the word there means ordinary. It wouldn't be fit for a sacred use, but ordinary, you know. Some for dishonorable. So, he says in verse 21, if anyone purifies himself from anything that's dishonorable, if you purify yourself through the power of the Spirit of God, Purify yourself from anything dishonorable. He will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That's that's the goal here. I want to be a special instrument. I want to be set apart. I want to be useful to God for whatever he would have, prepared for any good work he might have. But the implication is if you don't do this, you may not be ready at the time. And, And I love the illustration of the plates because... If you're like me, you, you have emptied the dishwasher before and you were like half done and you discovered that it wasn't run, it hadn't been run. I mean, has that ever happened to any of you before? Like you're like, you're half done or two thirds done and then you get to the bottom part and you're, there's a, like two or three plates in the back and obviously this didn't, wasn't run. They'd been maybe rinsed off, but it had not run. Now, that's happened to me a few times. How many of you think that if that happened to me, my response would have been, well, I've already done the work of putting those away. I'll just leave them go. 
You know, then I'll run the rest of them. Would any of you want to come over to my house to eat? Here's a plate. Dish up your food. (laughs) No, you'd say it's not suitable. It's not, it's not, no, get rid of all anything that's there. I know I grab them all, everything I could, all the stuff, even what it was touching, just so you know if you come over to our house. (laughs) And I I put it all back in the dishwasher and I run it because I'm not going to give you stuff on a dirty plate. And I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We offer ourselves to God. And by the way, this is supposed to be a once-for-all-time offering of believers. We just say, I'm yours, that's it. And then we go, we flesh it out day by day. So, again, my main point is when we're in God's word, we are in the sweet spot. First, offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice, number two. And these two points will go more quickly. Number two is observe the gifts God has given to you. Observe the gifts or take inventory of what God has given to you, how he has equipped you to serve and to to be. Let's read verses 3 through 8 again, and, and this immediately follows everything he's talking about. It's all meant to be taken together. He says, for by the grace given to me, and there, see, the word for is connecting it. And so he's he's talking about this, discovering God's will and being in God's will. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. In other words, have a realistic or accurate view. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, according to the grace given us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, if that's your gift, use it according to the standard of your faith. If service in serving, if teaching in teaching, if exhorting, if you're someone who exhorts, encourages others, exhort. If it's in giving, do it with generosity. If it's in leading, with diligence. If it's showing mercy with cheerfulness. Now, let me stop here, but every Christian has been given a spiritual gift, at least one, maybe several. And a spiritual gift is an ability to do something within the the church, the body of Christ. God has enabled you. He's given you an enablement to make a difference. And and this is intended to be your place in this thing called the body of Christ. It's, It's the role you have within that. And Paul here only mentions seven different gifts, but there are probably 23 different ones listed in the Bible. And they're in different places. They're in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 14, 12 through 14 talks about that. In other places, there are these, these lists of these various gifts. I encourage you to discover what your gift is. Now, you say, I don't know how to do that. Well, there are, you can go online, actually, and take spiritual gifts tests or spiritual gifts surveys. There are things you can take online that would help you. But I think the biggest test has to do with what my next point is going to be. And that is that, that we discover often what our gift is within the context of community with other believers. They'll tell you what you're good at, and they may tell you what you're not so good at. Both, and that's important here. Now, in addition to this, though, in addition to these spiritual gifts that he's listed, in terms of determining our place, I think there's more involved in that than that. And around here, we use this thing called the shape. S-H-A-P-E comes from Rick Warren. It's an acrostic where each letter stands for something. And all of these, when you put them together, help you get a picture of who you are and how God wants to use you. And so S, for the word shape, S is spiritual gift. Do you know what your gift is? H is heart. 
Different ones of us have a heart for different things. Some of you have a heart for children. Some of you have a heart for the poor. Some of you have a real heart for just organizational excellence. You just want things to be run well. And and on and on. When I was in college, actually, I had a heart for college students, and I moved here to Morgantown because I had a heart for college students, and we started then on the campus. I just had a heart for the fact we need to reach them now before they get older. But we have a heart for something. And then A in the word shape is abilities. We all have different abilities. Some of you have musical abilities. Some of you are just plain strong. (laughs) And that's to be used. It's not me. And some of you have abilities with computers and finances and numbers and and whatever else. But we take inventory of what, what are your abilities. And then the P in shape is personality. Some of you are suited for more um, introverted type things, and some of you for extroverted and other personality types. And then finally, experiences. God allows you to go through experiences that begin to pave the way to what he wants you to do. In my case, although I hated being the son of a minister, it was the best thing for my life. God used that. God used that. I look back on it now and say, God, that's brilliant. He used the very thing I hated the most to teach me how to do certain things, and and that's what God does. Now, Paul begins here in verse 3 by saying, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, be sensible about it, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. He's saying, again, take a humble and accurate assessment of yourself. Because sometimes we want a gift or an ability that we don't have because someone else has it and we admire it, and then we wish we had it. And I've seen people go down the wrong trail that way instead of just examining, how have you made me, God? What, 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 what gift do you have for me? Now, every time I read this verse, I mean every time I read this verse, I think of one story about just having a humble, accurate view of yourself it happened in maybe 1988. All the Christian groups on campus decided to do a talent show. And we were all cooperating together for this thing. We were going to do, we're going to do it in the student union called the Mountain Lair, in the ballroom there. And we were inviting the whole school to come. So it was meant to be evangelistic and everything else. And so all, all these student groups came and I showed up. I was about two-thirds of the way in the back because I didn't have any talent. And so I was toward the back or three-quarters of the way in the back and, and just sitting there, and hundreds of students were there. At a certain point, uh, uh, someone I knew, uh, I'd call him a friend, I suppose, uh, walked out and introduced himself as one of, he was going to display his talent. And he wasn't part of our group. He was part of someone else's group. But um, he walked over after he introduced himself to the piano, and he began to play, and it was It was wonderful. I just, was, I, I just didn't know he played the piano so well. I was just so thrilled with it. And then he began to sing. And to the degree that his piano playing was amazing, his singing was not. And it struck me as funny. And I, wasn't, I didn't want to be disrespectful, but I sat there chewing my lip, doing everything I could not to laugh because it just struck me as absolutely, it, just, it was just funny. And then all of a sudden, I feel this shaking noise next, right next to me. I mean, somebody, my friend is shaking. I look, what's wrong with you? And I look over, and he had his face in his hands, and he was just bouncing up and down, and he was laughing. And I lost it. <laughs> I, I had done so well until, until I saw that, and he had lost it, and now I lost it, and I was, 
I was I couldn't stop then. I was I was crying. It was I, I you know my hands are down. I'm so moved by the song. No. I, you know, and I, I, I literally did pray that I, I wouldn't see him afterwards because I didn't know what I was going to say about it, you know. And then when he was done, he said, and for my next number. And I literally thought, why did nobody in his world care enough to tell him, you can't sing, please don't. Now, maybe they did and he didn't listen. But I really did wonder that because I thought this was just, it's not your thing. And this is where we get to my third point, and that is that we operate within the context of community. We want to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We observe the gifts God has given to us and then operate within the context of community. And Paul launches into how we're to relate to one another, beginning in verse 9. He says, Love must be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, show family affection to one another with brotherly love, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lack diligence, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And all of these are ways, and there are more in the chapter, but he's just talking about how we need to be together, operating together as a family. And I think all of this, again, is in the same context of discovering how God wants to use us and God's will for our lives is that we be connected. And this is why the writer of Hebrews said, don't forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't abandon that, but encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day, we need to be encouraging one another. Elsewhere in Hebrews, he says we need to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need to spur each other on. Keep doing what's good. Keep doing what's right. Keep loving. And we help one another do this. So let me summarize this. I think when we're in God's will, we're in our sweet spot. We're, we're, we're where God wants us to be. It's where we're going to end up leaving the, the legacy. And, and a lot of people in, in the Bible, or at least a handful, I can think of three or four. It says their obituary, if I could put it that way, was so-and-so fulfilled what God had for them in their life. Abraham was one like that. Jesus was one. He fulfilled his father's will. He went the distance for God. And this would be the, the best thing, to fulfill what God has for us. And I think it can happen. But as Paul talks about, we offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice so that you'll know his good and perfect will. We observe the gifts God has given to us, and then we, we stay connected to one another. Now, some of you here today, the application is that what God wants for you is to put your trust in Christ. In fact, in, in the New Testament, we read that explicitly. God says it's not his will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. It's God's will that all find Jesus Christ, that you come to a point where you recognize your sinful condition, you realize you can't fix it, and you turn to Jesus Christ to save you, to deliver you from the penalty of your sin. And if you want to know more about that, I encourage you to go out to the next step area there, and they'll talk with you and explain how to do that, although it's a simple matter of just putting your trust in Christ. I want to close with this thought, though I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again, but I've often wondered what would happen if all God's people did indeed connect with who God made them to be and what God wanted them to do? What if we were all operating within the context of the gifts God has given to us? The difference we could make, the difference we could make, and this is part of the reason I think Satan doesn't want us to, this stuff to work, because we can make a huge difference in this world for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much as to have blessed us and given us so, so much. 
We don't deserve the, the life we have. We don't deserve the gifts you've given to us, the, the blessings. So, Lord, we acknowledge it all from your hand. But I pray, Lord, you do a work in our hearts that we would be ones who offer ourselves up to you, a holy and acceptable sacrifice, and ones who are not following the voice of this world, but following the voice of your spirit who wants to lead us in the way you want us to go. We do want to make a difference in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.